Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm traveling across the Carolinas, seeking out some of my favorite sports legends and asking them to tell me some of the stories behind their rise to iconic status. Now, for this episode of Sports Legends, we're delighted to be in our podcast studio in Charlotte, where I'm seated across from NFL Hall of Fame general manager, Bill Polian. Bill Polian revitalized the fortune of three different NFL teams, Buffalo, Carolina, and Indianapolis. They all made it to either the NFC or AFC championship game at least once during his tenure. He was named the NFL's Executive of the Year by the Sporting News a record six times. The impossible dreams have all come true. I began by paraphrasing Churchill, uh, closed by quoting the pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig. Today, I am the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Thank you and won a Super Bowl ring in Indianapolis. Polian also constructed the very first Carolina Panthers teams in the mid-1990s, hiring a veteran quarterback named Frank Reich to be the team's very first starter. He would later get Reich into coaching, and the two have stayed in close touch ever since. We'll talk about that relationship, Polian's thoughts on the Panthers and rookie quarterback Bryce Young, and much more. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be with you. It's been wonderful to watch your career first up close, and and uh, and you've you've been a lot of different places. Uh, tell us a little bit first about what you're doing now. Well, right now I'm uh, working with um, Sirius XM Radio and have been for uh, 12 years, I guess, 10 or 12 years. And I do a show called Late Hits once a week, which is a three-hour show, and we cover everything that's going on in the NFL in a given week. And then, of course, I do extra shots around the draft and free agency and things like that. And in addition, I write a column every week during the season for a website called The 33rd Team that Mike Tannenbaum, the former president of the Dolphins, set up. And we've got an all-star cast of people like Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick and others that contribute. So um, that, believe it or not... How are um, you retired? I don't know. It doesn't sound like it. <laughs> You might say (laughs) semi-retired. I found out that your business is way harder than I thought. Oh, okay. So now you have respect for us. I do. I do. Having to write every week is is not easy. That's true. Sometimes it gets really slow. It's not like you don't have a huge uh, news story every week. Yeah, and I would highly recommend that website. And that is, how do you get that? 33rd Team. 33rd Team. Right. Yeah. And and as well as the SiriusXM show which is on when exactly we're in hiatus now because of uh, vacation time in the nfl but it's on usually every wednesday night from uh, seven to ten and in addition i've written two books one's called the game plan which is came out just after i left the colts and then another one which is fairly recent called super bowl blueprints wow they, I haven't read the second one. I did read all of the first one. I really enjoyed it. Uh, that came out in 2014, I think, right. right? How did you get to Charlotte in the first place and construct these very first Carolina Panther teams? Well, it was interesting. Um, I knew Mike McCormick for a long time during our, you know, his time in the league and my time in the league. And, um, and so I'd stayed in touch with him, and he would call every once in a while and say, you know, what should we do about this or that? I'd try to give him some advice. Uh, I was working in a league office at the time. I'd left Buffalo. I was vice president in charge of football operations for the league. And so was involved peripherally in the, in the expansion talks, if you will, um, primarily on operational issues. So I'd advise the commissioner and others you know, this will work operationally, this may not. Uh, it, it was principally a, a decision that 
was going to be made on business grounds. Um, but I had a little involvement in it. And so I got to know Jerry Richardson and Mark Richardson through that process because they were in and out of the office. Got to meet the Glazers and, mm-hmm. you know, others that came in. So um, I, I was kind of, as I say, involved on the periphery. And then at the end of the 93 season, Commissioner Tagliabue asked me if I wanted to stay. And, and he indicated that, you know, he would like me to. And I said, no, you know, honestly, I really think I'll be happier with a club. Mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't at that point in my life ready to give up the competitive side of the NFL. Then we had, you know, a couple discussions with uh, about three teams. Um, and I was going to go somewhere else. I didn't know that. And, uh, and, and, and Mike uh, got ill. And, uh, and so Jerry called me and said, you know, would you be interested in coming? And I said, well, let me think about it. So I thought about it for a couple of days, talked to my wife about it. The area was appealing, obviously, when, when you live in Buffalo for 11 years. <laughs> a little different, yeah. <laughs> it's different, right? And, uh, and I thought that, the, the, you know, the challenge of putting together uh, an expansion team would be fun and exciting and something that I'd never done before. Um, it was very different than I anticipated that it would be, mm. um, but, um, but it was nonetheless fun. And um, and we were fortunate enough uh, because of the fact that I had worked for and with the management council. So I, and it was part of the group that put together the salary cap. I knew a lot of the ins and outs of the salary cap that weren't common knowledge, let's say, in the industry. So the number one pick was going to be the highest paid player in the league at his position. If we kept it, we didn't. But the, the long and short of it is, that it gave us a lot of room to sign veteran free agents. And as it turned out, because of the need to sell PSLs to get the stadium built, it was the preference of ownership to be as as competitive as we could be coming right out of the box. And I understood that. That was that was a great, you know, good mm-hmm. thing. And uh, and so we 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 drafted about a dozen players in the uh, out of 36 or 38, I think, in the expansion draft that we thought would help us. The others were just there because we had to take them. They didn't make the team. Their salaries were low. Mm-hmm. So it gave us a lot of cap room to go after veterans, oh, which we did. So we constructed the defense largely of veterans uh, who could play Dom Capers' uh, system. And, and then... Mm-hmm built the offense largely through the draft. Although Wesley Walls was a, a big free agent signing who played a tremendous role. And uh, I, can't, I think we had one other player that was a, mm-hmm. a major uh, signing, free agent signing on offense. But most of the free agent money went to defense. The defense, I remember at the time, was nicknamed the grumpy old man. They weren't really grumpy. <laughs> they were old by NFL standards. They were and ornery on the field. Ornery, sure. yes, they were. And they had a, a just a fantastic locker room uh, led by Sam Mills, right. one of your very first uh, free agent signings, right? right? Yeah. John Casey actually and was, John was Casey. the first free agent signing. And uh, and and you know very happy that he still I guess is the longest serving Panther yes, in franchise right. history. Sam Mills gets the sack, his second of the year. Mitchell comes across in motion. Here's a little short pass underneath that is intercepted. Sam Mills cuts back at the ten, cuts at the five, touchdown Carolina. Yeah, Sam was a was a, a key cog for us. Tom had known him from New Orleans and. I ironically had turned them down in, in a tryout camp for the Kansas City Chiefs. I didn't know that. Yes. You were part of that? Oh, was, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's one, a little blemish. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and then, you know, we had uh, Greg Cragen came through the expansion draft. Carlton Bailey, I think, came from the expansion draft. Mm-hmm. Middle screen. It's intercepted by Bailey. Carlton Bailey, touchdown. The secondary was almost all free agents. Lamar Layton, Maxie, yeah, yeah Kevin Lamar Green. Here they come once again. It is Kevin Green's second sack of this first half. 
Yeah, so, yeah. You've got good in a hurry, largely yeah. based on defense. Yes, uh, based a on lot defense. of it, right? Yeah. yeah. Drafted Carey uh, with right. their very first pick, traded down to do it. Right. And was that what? And why did you do that as opposed to just picking him at number one as the you know Panthers this year picked another quarterback at number one? That's the closest call I've ever had in terms of who to draft. Mm. It was, he and Steve McNair were neck and neck. Mm-hmm. I mean, just side by side. Really. Yeah. There was no difference. The only difference was how quickly Steve would play because of his background playing at a lower level. Kerry was going to step in and be able to play quicker because he played on a great Penn State team that really should have won the national championship. Mm. And so we said our first preference, when, when you've got a tie like that, your first preference is do we want to trade down and see what we can do to get extra picks. We had extra picks anyway via the expansion draft. We got double picks double picks yeah. in every round, first and last. Um, and so um, the trade down situation presented itself. As we scoped it out, it looked like we might lose Steve where we did to Tennessee at three. We went to five with, uh, with Cincinnati and picked up a pick that became Tyrone Poole, which was great. He was uh, another one of the few rookie starters on defense. You know, it, it, would re- it was really, really a close call. And, um, and we would have been happy with either guy. And I was thrilled that Steve went on and had a great career with Tennessee. Unfortunately, a tragic ending to oh, his life, yeah. but had a great career with Tennessee. I remember joking with him by the time I was at Indianapolis and he was riding high in Tennessee. I walked out to the field in the pregame. He was warming up and he said, hey, how you doing? Came over, put his arm around me. I said, I'm sick and tired of seeing you. I had enough of you. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Tell people, I guess, where you grew up and then uh, how you got into this. Well, I was born in the Bronx, New York. A uh, very average athlete, but loved it. Um, wanted to go into coaching and did. Uh, spent 10 years coaching at the small college level, U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, Columbia University. Um, and actually, even though we had um, terrific teams at the Merchant Marine Academy, we got fired. A change in athletic director. And, and, and actually, the head coach was George Paterno, Joe's brother. Huh. So I've known th- both of them for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. God rest their souls, they're both deceased now. Um, and, and the bedrock of my football philosophy is football paternal style. Um, the So I was out of football when, and had a family to feed, went into the advertising sales business, and my college coach became the um, director of player personnel for the Montreal Alouettes. And he said, you need to be in the personnel business. That's what you really do best. So I said, okay. So he gave me a part-time job and I covered the Midwest and, and, and the East and the NFL, which is really where most of the CFL teams come from. Oh, and okay. draw from, I should say, that's where the players come from, players who've been cut from the NFL. So the first year we did it, um, he called me and said they were in the playoffs. He said, Coach would like you to come up and see the game and wants to talk with you. So I said, okay, fine. I was thrilled to do it. I came up, sat down with the coach, and he said to me, I've been reading your reports. And I was shocked by that. I mean, what yeah. head coach reads reports, right? <laughs> right. And, uh, and he said, you, you know, you're really good, and we'd like to have you to be part of the organization and so forth. And, um, and the coach was Marv Levy. So now you know. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. (laughs) Four decades ago, he took an interest in an obscure scout whose reports impressed him. That was me. But for Marv, I would not have a career in pro football, let alone be standing here. He is my mentor, my role model, my friend. I have very often failed to live up to his example but I never fail to continue to try because for me, he represents all I ever aspired to be when I was a young man dreaming impossible dreams. Yes, Marv Levy, uh, you you and he had uh, incredible success in Buffalo uh, together. 
and that was the first time you were a general manager. You yes, I had been an advanced scout for the Chiefs with Marv. We got let go there. I went to Winnipeg as the uh, director of player personnel, and then with Marv to the USFL Chicago Blitz, and then I preceded him in Buffalo. I went to Buffalo as the pro personnel director, um, was promoted to general manager. We had an opening, and I convinced Mr. Wilson to uh, to hire Marvin. It's interesting, Mr. Wilson. Obviously, you know I'm a young guy, young in the business. As a general manager, he's not going to take my word for right. it. He called uh, uh, Mr. Hunt, Lamar Hunt, mm. and said, "Tell me about Marv Levy." And Mr. Hunt said to him, "Ralph, it's the biggest mistake I ever made in football was letting him go." Really, this is sort of a question with roots in the past, but thinking about what's going to happen uh, this fall. So your quarterbacks that you've succeeded with and, and, and at a very high level, uh, people would think of Jim Kelly, Peyton Manning, Kerry Collins here, there's others, but they all share that prototypical quarterback build. Bryce Young, the Panthers' new uh, quarterback who your old, uh, you know, Frank Reich, your your old coach and the person you got into this business uh, in a lot of ways in the coaching business is going to go with Bryce Young, who's 5'10". How much of a problem do you think that is? I don't know that it's a problem as much as a challenge. Um, You're absolutely right. The prototype is Frank, Jim, Peyton. By the way, if you want to make the Hall of Fame, I got an easy way to do it. Have... Marv Levy, Dom Capers, and Tony Dungy be your coaches, <laughs> and Jim Kelly, Kerry Collins, and Peyton Manning as your quarterback. It's easy. <laughs> That's how you did it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, exceptionally lucky. Yes, that's, that's, that's pretty good people to work with. Yeah. There. I mean, you met you made the Hall of Fame, of course, in 2015. I think it was. Yeah. I remember that right. But yeah, so all these quarterbacks—you've all you always uh, at least—I don't know if it was coincidental or not. I mean, but you always had that that oh, guy no, in it, your. It wasn't coincidental. That's what I thought. In fact, we we worried a little bit about Steve McNair because he was untraditional in the sense that he was about six one and a half. Also, if you don't play him second half, you don't get much. 13-3 Tennessee, and look at Steve McNair. Black get it go for the big fella. Forty-seven yard run. Yeah, two hundred and thirty pounds. We can outrun almost everybody on the football field. They're getting close to the goal line. So uh, he was the forerunner of the, of today's quarterback, really, mm-hmm. the so-called athletic quarterback. Yes. Uh, and, and to this day, I've never seen a guy that threw as well as Steve. Really? Honestly. I mean, he, he, he was just marvelous. He could make every single throw accurately. The ball was perfect. It never wobbled. It was always where it was supposed to be. He was – Ian Mahomes are the two most gifted passers I've ever you seen. You mean above Peyton and stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of them are obviously Hall of Famers and great players. But right. Pure ability to throw the ball. Ian purely. Mahomes. Yeah. Ian Mahomes. Yeah. Um, but in terms of height. Bryce Young is not prototypical. He is much more like Drew Brees, who is just barely six feet, I think, than he is anyone else. But I always told our scouts wherever I was, if we're going to be wrong, let's be wrong for the right reasons. And in Bryce's case, he has everything else you want in a quarterback except height and girth. He's six feet. I'm sorry, 5'10". He's going to be about 195 pounds. So if you miss, it's going to be because of the stature. There is no other misfactor in him whatsoever. None. He's perfect. Young, under pressure, plays contain. Young, runs it. Young, first down and more. What a play by the Heisman Trophy winner. Bryce Young, a 19-yard gain. So if he was 6 feet 2 and 210 pounds, the Bears never trade that pick. Because mm. he would be considered so can't miss. So can't miss. Uh-huh. Like Peyton. Well, like well, Peyton. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Although Peyton, in that case, we'll talk about that. But you had a decision to make there. Yeah, but the, but yeah. The, the, that that was but that, that sort that, of situation more public information than okay the, you know, yeah than, than in real information. Mm. If Bryce were six feet two and two hundred ten pounds, he'd be Joe Burrow. 
Mm-hmm. Who, by the way, can spin it very well as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, so what kind of career do you think Bryce Young will have? Well, I, I think if they protect them correctly and you have to go to the protection scheme that New Orleans used, making it, you know, big and wide in the middle to make sure that you got throwing lanes for him. And he takes care of himself in terms of extending and getting down, not taking the kinds of hits that, that can knock you out of a ball game. I think he'll have a fine career. We took a lot of short players in Indianapolis because Tony and I and our scouting staff did a lot of studies on, you know, could we play with short players, Dwight Freeney being the most obvious one? The answer is yes. They tend to, have, to the extent that there's a sample size, they ex- they tend to have shorter careers than the bigger, longer guys. Why is that? Is I, we, don't we don't know. Oh. We don't know. We, we can't really pinpoint it. You know, so... Would you logically sit there and expect Bryce to play 15 years like Aaron and Peyton? Maybe not. Drew played 16? No. So you can hit the jackpot, and there is no other reason to say no to None whatsoever. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Well, that's really interesting about Bryce Young. Let's talk about his coach, Frank Reich, who you've had a really long-standing relationship with. Let's start. Just explain how you guys got to know each other and what sort of quarterback he was in Buffalo for you. His college coach, Bobby Ross, at Maryland, and I were friends from our time with the Chiefs. Um, I made a call at Maryland. Bobby pulled me aside. He said, you really need to take a look at Frank Reich. He, he had just become the starter because the, the, their number one guy had gone down. And in, in the course of that season, ironically enough, he led the greatest comeback in college football history against the University of Miami. They were down 28 points, I think. Frank Reich with his men in the eye were under nine and a half minutes to go. Reich to Neal. Nice kick out blocked by Badonik and Neal with room to run. Touchdown. Here come the Terps, and Miami's going to have to buckle down that chin strap one more notch because Maryland has come out breathing fire in the second half. So I certainly took a look, watched the film, talked to Bobby about it. His word was gold as far as I was concerned. And and so wrote a report, and we were looking for a quarterback because Jim Kelly had signed with the USFL. This was the 1985 draft that Jim was going to come back. The, the USFL had not quite yet exploded. It was uh, imploded. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It was on the verge, but that. And so we were operating as though we weren't going to have Jim. So uh, we drafted Drank. He came in and impressed everybody with his work ethic and his diligence and his ability to play. And at the end of his rookie season, I took him aside and I said to him, at some point when your career is over and you're going to have a good career in the NFL, you should think about coaching because the way you conduct yourself, the way you handle your business, the way you interact with your teammates has head coach written all over it. So for whatever it's worth, keep that in mind. And so, uh, of course, he went on to have a great career with us during his time with the Bills. He was the best backup quarterback in football up until this past year, uh, led the greatest comeback in NFL history against uh, the Houston Oilers in the playoffs. They have a first down at their own 41-yard line. Right goes right, he throws. The pass is complete. James Lofton, that is his first reception of the ballgame. And for Frank Reich, it has been the tail of two halves. The first half, 5 of 11 for 59 yards. The second half, 8 of 12, 123 yards. He threw for the touchdown. We had a quarterback controversy. <laughs> Jim had been injured in the, the last uh, I, third game to the end against the New York Giants. And and Frank had to step in and play. Obviously, won two playoff games, and now we're going on to the championship game. And and Marv and I had I had echoed Marv said when Jim's back, he's the quarterback. And uh, 
and he was, and I'm sure Frank wasn't thrilled about it, but he right. was, as always, a great, great teammate. And he and Jim were roommates, so they helped each other. And then he was part of a large part of creating the no huddle offense, because during the off season between 88 and 80, 89 and 90, I'm sorry, when we decided to go essentially two minute offense for the whole game, Frank sat down with Ted Marchabroda, who was then the uh, offensive coordinator, and they scripted and, and and shorthanded the whole offense. And he went over it with Jim, and they, they put it together. And actually, he would call plays on the sideline during the game. They had a signal system. To this day, I don't know what it was, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> Frank would call some plays I mean, while oh, he was yeah. the backup quarterback? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Jim would look out of him, you know, if he He's didn't a, have a play like run this. Yeah. Frank would give him a, give him a signal. Wow. So that's unusual. Yeah. Everybody, everybody in the building by that time knew that Frank was going to be a great head coach when, when, when his time came, but he went on to have a, a really good career, came here. And you us. thought he was going to be your starter I did. here too as yeah, well, I did. right? Yeah. yeah. At and least for a, a while. As a bridge. Bridge quarterback. Yeah. As yeah. a bridge to, uh, to whomever the, the rookie was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he did did a great job and then went on to, I think, the Jets in Detroit. I'm not sure. Maybe the Jets and then Detroit. I'm not sure the order. And then finally retired. And in 98, I had gone to Indianapolis. And uh, and so I called him and said, I, you know, I'd like you to – I think we're going to draft Peyton. I'd like you to come in and coach him. And he said, well, that's very flattering. Let me think about it. Called me back and he said uh, – you know, I've made this commitment to the seminary here. I feel like I have to keep it. Um, I don't know if it's my calling or not, but I got to find out. And so I said, great, you know, whenever, if the time ever comes that you change your mind, just let me know. And that was, it's typical Frank Reich. You know, he's going to do what, mm-hmm. what what he believes to be right. And if he makes a commitment, he's going to follow through on it. And it doesn't matter what the alternatives are. Um, so he began his, his career in the ministry and everything was going along smoothly. And lo and behold, out of the blue, it, it, I think it was the year after we won the Super Bowl, but I'm not certain of that. But it's in that general time frame. Our team's built. Tony's the coach. Peyton is, you know, flying high. And, and he said, I, I, I really think it's time for me to get into coaching. So I said, Okay, great. <laughs> so <laughs> I went into Tony and and said, you know, Frank wants to get into coaching, and and he said, well, that would be great. It's the only problem is we the only job we have opening is as a coaching assistant, and and it's not a very high paying job. So I said, well, l- let me broach it to him, and he said, I'd like to have him meet with Jim Caldwell and talk with Jim, <clears throat> just to be sure they're on the the same page. Uh, but he said, I, you know, Frank's great. I, he'd be a great addition. So I called him and I had some trepidation about the salary. I forget what it is now, but it, cer- but it certainly wasn't high even then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, no, that's no problem. He uh-huh. said, I'm willing to bet on myself and prove that I can do it. So he met with Jim. Jim was very enthusiastic about having him. So he came in as a, as a coaching assistant, as the, you know, the third guy in the quarterback room. And uh, obviously melded with Peyton and and others, and then you know gravitated uh, when Jim became the head coach to the quarterback coaching position, and the rest, as they say, is history. Interesting that Jim Caldwell is now here, and Dom Capers is here. And yeah, they, this know. is alumni week. Whenever I go to practice, we'll be back right after this. Welcome back. So a big picture question, but so how do you think the Panthers will do this year? If you had to predict their record, what would you say? Well, I I think it'll be a bit of a struggle through game eight because they're learning a new offense, new skills, new techniques on defense, completely new techniques on defense. So that's going to be the shakedown crews Mm. from week eight or so on. 
I think it'll go up. It'll be a competitive team. It'll be a disciplined team. I think the fans are going to like what they see in Bryce. He's going to struggle, as all rookies do. Uh, but I think it, it, it will grow and be better. At the end of the year, I'm convinced that the arrow will be up. But this is far from a complete team. There's a lot of work that has to be done on the personnel side. And as far as I'm concerned, they couldn't have better people than Scott Fitterer and Dan Morgan and, and his whole group. They're really outstanding. So they'll get, and you look at this draft, look who they took. I mean, not only orchestrating the trade to get up and get Bryce, but, you know, some of the other people they took are going to be producers almost immediately. So the more picks they have, the better off they're going to do. But there's a lot of building still to be done. And there needs to be like an Olsen. Exactly. Uh, oh, an Olsen at an tight Olsen end. An Olsen tight end. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, there needs to be another rusher aside from Burns. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably need another inside rusher. And and certainly in the secondary, uh, some, you know, probably a safety who can impact the game, yes. both run and pass. Like Sanders was. In- like Sanders was, yeah. yes, exactly. So I wonder about their wide receivers, too. Um, they're going to be fine. Still, the guys that are here now are, are good, solid pros. Um, and, and at tight end as well. And Sanders and the others, you know, right. are, are good pickups. They're going to be fine. But they're bridges. Mm. The, 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 the number one receiver that's going to be the guy when Bryce hits his stride, isn't here yet. Oh. And, 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 you know, I don't know about the running back position. I, I think, I think he'll be good for a, a little while yet. And, Miles Sanders. Yeah. And Hurst mm-hmm. ought to be good for a little while yet. So. Right. Well, that's a good way to put it. So the, so Bryce Young's favorite all-time target maybe just isn't. He's just not here yet. No, it could be Mingo. I mean, they, they could. They, well, that's true. Could they, be. They could hit it like Maybe that. Maybe so. You know? Yeah, that, that's that's right. But yeah. I guess with uh, as I'm thinking about Kerry, you had uh, he was thrown to Willie Green and Mark Carrier early. Cool, good fall down one. Yes. Thirty dollars to ten. Here's Collins. Passes caught. Touchdown, Willie Green. Tight coverage, but a perfect pass. And then, and Moose, then Moose, be- Moose you, became the guy. You got. Yeah. The Maybe second the next year. year. Second right. year. Yeah. So I've heard it a lot of different ways. So I'll ask you directly. Why did you, after you left here, the Panthers went on a long slide toward irrelevance? Uh, they made it, you know, made the NFC Championship game for those who don't haven't followed them for a long time. Second year, made the NFC Championship wing. Went to Green Bay. Boy, it looked like it was. Talk about the arrow pointing up. Team got older. But then also Bill Polian left and became Indianapolis's president. So why did you uh, depart, Carolina? Just very simple. We, we weren't – I wasn't with ownership in, in, in alignment as to how we should go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the team was good but not good enough. And, and I felt that we had to make a number of personnel changes. Dom was terrific. I, he, he and I, to this day, are great friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but we needed to make some personnel changes because we were aging on offense, and it, and there wasn't going. Uh, I'm sorry, on defense. defense yeah, excuse right. me. Yeah. Uh, there there wasn't going to be another Super Bowl run mm-hmm. unless we unless we changed things, and so you know we weren't in alignment on that, and and I just felt like if that's the case, then you're better off to move on. And then you went to Indianapolis. And was it the very first year that you drafted Peyton? I can't yes. remember. Yeah. 1998. And didn't wasn't there at one point a possibility that before you drafted him, but that you might trade that pick and get Kerry Collins as your quarterback in well, Indianapolis? There was, there, were, they, there was talk of that. I mean, there's a lot of talk back and yeah. forth. But in, in the final analysis, we felt like it was, it was for a lot of reasons that had to do mainly with our place but the Colts place in a pecking order in sports in the city that it might, we might be better off to pick Peyton and start fresh with a, with a new face who was, who was going to be the guy that people could rally around. 
on his feet, keep his poise, make something out of nothing, and that's what Peyton Manning does on a very consistent basis. And as I said before, what I like about Peyton is he can elude the initial defender, and he has that ability to loft the ball, Joe, and that's an instinctive quality that only the great quarterbacks really possess. You know how big this draft is? It's not very often that we see the owners of the first two teams. That's right. You mentioned off-air, Bill, that Charlotte and Indianapolis had some interesting parallels. Describe those. Yeah, when you stop and think about it, it's amazing. I hadn't thought about it till I began prepping for this interview. Um, basketball, pro basketball, was the first sport in both cities. In Indianapolis, they actually, the fans actually literally bought the team for a while. It was about to go belly up in the ABA. Mm. And and the fan base bought it. Saved it. Yeah, oh. saved it. Oh. And then... Uh, the uh, Simon family came in and, and bought it. And they're still beloved to this day because of that, mm. both the Pacers and the Simon family. Um, it was a college town through and through. IU basketball was number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> 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 Purdue, a, a, a close second, Purdue basketball, mm -hmm. um, Purdue football. Uh, was great. Uh, Motorsports, Indy 500. Much uh, like the Coca-Cola 600 here. Yes, yeah. like NASCAR here. Yeah. And then, I mean, we did a survey. We were fifth. Colts yeah. were fifth. Yeah. It's hard to believe the NFL would be fifth in any yeah. any city. Yeah. But the but they were bad when you showed up. Right? Well, they had they were they they were mediocre. They'd okay. been mediocre, and then they 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 went to two and fourteen and. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to have the first pick in the draft, uh, but there was there was no connection with the, the the franchise with the team, and because just as it was here, other teams' games were, were televised into Indianapolis. They were NFL fans, but not Colts fans. There were a lot of Detroit fans there because they got Lions games. Hmm. A ton of Bears fans there. I, I get that. Yeah. Just as when we came here, the Redskins were everybody's team. Mm -hmm. And then because of so many transplants, Pittsburgh was the second favorite team. <laughs> so it, it, you had to remake the entire fan base, take a generation of people and make them Colt fans. And fortunately, because of Peyton, we were able to do that. There was never a, someone comparable Peyton here. I think Luke is probably as close as it comes, and Olsen maybe. Cam In terms never, of just pure belovedness, yeah, sort of, I or, think so. Or, yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. I don't, mm -hmm. Cam never. I guess it was. I, 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 I'm wrong in that. The fact that we were able to win as consistently, as, and and we, while we didn't make the Super Bowl early enough, we we still won very spectacularly and consistently. And then won the Super Bowl, so that changed everything. And then Peyton was a driving force in the community, he, not just football. He was into the community up to his ears. With the uh, first pick in the draft, the Indianapolis Colts select quarterback, University of Tennessee, Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning Children's Hospital, which still exists today, that he revived high school football. Wow. In 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 mm. the in, in in the state actually, mm. uh, with with the, the Peyton Classic, which was an eight team doubleheader to open the season at the at the then uh, uh, Hoosier Dome and still carries on at Lucas Oil Stadium. So, um, you know, Lucas Oil Stadium is the house that Peyton built. Mm. So um, all of that coalesced around him, and largely because of his personality and his commitment to the city. Well, Gary, who knew that that one pick would quite literally change the landscape of Indianapolis from a new football stadium, a Super Bowl, a children's hospital, and a boost to the city's tourism industry that continues even today, more than two decades since number 18's arrival in the Circle City. Yes, what you're describing is almost like Olsen's 
charity work and Luke on the field and Cam's charisma sort of all rolled up into one guy. With That's Peyton exactly Manning. right. Yeah. That's Did exactly you right. ever have nightmares about what if you had made the wrong choice there? <laughs> <laughs> Picked Ryan Leaf instead. <laughs> no, because that wasn't that wasn't ever going to happen once we get into the process. But but I will explain say, that sort of briefly. I know you have before, but just what happened? Why did you do it? Well, because as we got into the scouting process, it was obviously clear that Peyton was far and away much more ready to play than Ryan was, and and, and maybe would ever be. So that was a relatively easy decision. But I, I just told you about how beautiful a passer Steve McNair was. Peyton is not a beautiful passer. I mean, the, the criticism about his throwing a duck every now and then is. Accurate. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, yeah. not to the extent that, that people uh, magnified it, but mm. it, it'll happen every uh-huh. now and then. Bill Polian had told me that uh, earlier in the day, they had them about a tenth of a point apart. They were very, very close. And the reason is because sometimes he'll grip the ball too hard. Huh. And, and so it wobbles a little bit. But bottom line, it, it didn't disqualify him in any way. But, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to tell our owner, Jim Irsay, that we were getting a Hall of Famer. Now, I said, he sat down and said to me, tell me what the difference is and tell me why we should make the pick. Jim, by the way, was a general manager, started as a ball boy, was a scout, so he knew football. Mm-hmm. And so I said, look, if we hit on Peyton, we've hit the jackpot because everything about him is solid gold. But you never know when you're, you know, you can't predict that. If we miss because of his diligence and work ethic and devotion to the game and ability to control the game through his head, the worst we get is Bernie Kosar. If we miss on Ryan, it's it's probably a bust. So much for my scouting ability. Well, I think you had that one pretty accurately, yeah. Uh, Bernie Kosar was pretty good, he too. Was, yeah, he was. so he that's the. Kids me right. <laughs> I bet he loves that one, yeah. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Welcome back. You mentioned, speaking of quarterbacks, in a previous conversation we had shortly after Frank Reich was hired, that. There's a misconception about Frank that he is only a, quote, quarterback whisperer, that that is his – that's the one thing he does. Like he's a one-trick pony and that's it. Uh, Explain sort of why that's a misconception. Uh, Yeah, you know, I don't know how those things get started, but nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, as the quarterback, as a player, and as a backup quarterback to Jim Kelly, he interacted with the whole team. I told you that he had a big part in, in, in scripting the entire offense and mm-hmm. shorthanding it and putting together the no-huddle offense and, and actually calling plays. Uh, also, you know, he's interacting with the offensive linemen with respect to protections. He's interacting with the, the offensive coordinator on a, on a daily basis with respect to to play design and reading of defenses and keys in the defense. So he's he as the quarterback, and as, especially as a cerebral quarterback who really worked at it, he, he was looking at the whole picture all the time, which an offensive coordinator and a head coach has to do. Secondly, he connected with everybody on the team. He was, was and is a, a devout Christian, but he connected with everybody. Mm. He really had great relationships with guys on the defensive side. I mean, we had quite a crew there in Buffalo. I mean, right, right. yeah. <laughs> it was, you talk about diversity. Yeah. Who were we, some of your wildest ones? Oh, they, gosh. Bruce Smith was, you know, Andre really? Reed. They, yeah. I mean, they, they, it, was, it was diverse racially, personality wise. Uh-huh. The one thing that was in common was that we had a lot of high character, smart guys. But Frank was able to connect with all of them. And, uh, and, and of course, like we all did brought into Coach Levy's philosophy 1000%. So everyone was on the same page from day one, but he's been able to do that wherever he's been. So mm-hmm. yeah, yes, he will help the quarterback without question, but he's also 
going to be invested in virtually everything on the offensive side. I don't know if he's decided whether he wants to call plays or not yet. He sounds like he is going to start. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know. And then to, turn it over. And then at some point. But he's, he's great at managing a game. And as an example, when they had to resort because of injuries and other things to the running game in, in Indianapolis, the running back, Led the league in rushing. Jonathan Taylor, Jonathan right. Taylor. Yeah, there was yeah. Uh, the uh, fantasy football star that year, yeah. and I know you love fantasy football. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that one of your great lines? You would always say, it's not fantasy football. That's correct. <laughs> uh, you are super easy to talk to now, funny, smart, pretty mellow, but you weren't always, right? I mean, you were uh, tempestuous at, at some point in your life. So, is it true? I, f- I feel like you've told me this a little bit before, but did you ever get into a three-point stance with an agent or challenge oh, him? No, or that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a fish story. Okay, that's a fish story. <laughs> I believe we, we did we did get nose to nose and nose to nose. Okay, yeah, the, and there was some screaming into phones and stuff, right? Yes. I, I think Bob Ferguson told me one time that you one of your best lines was. I'll come through this phone and tear your tonsils out. <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but it's entirely possible. No one's ever called me tempestuous before, but I kind of like it. I think that's a good okay. All right. In the old days, not in yeah, the long. Uh, uh, of course, in the old days. Yeah. Did you use it? You know, as a as an advantage. Truthfully, yes. I yeah. mean, you got as a negotiator, you have to you have to use everything you have. But I I, I in, in those days, I was so focused on winning that I didn't really, to be truthful with you, understand until I got into the guts of the collective bargaining negotiations and saw people like Tagliabue, the lawyers for the for the um, uh, union, Jim Quinn as, as being, and Jeff Kessler, who's of course very famous, do their work. I recognize that, you know, there's another side. It isn't just, bulldozing your way through to, to mm-hmm. toward your goal. You have to find a way to get people to work together and, mm-hmm. and, and find common ground. Now, in those days, there were many more cutthroat and non-professional agents than there are today. Mm-hmm. That, that There was a sea change between the time I came here in 94 and even when I started in Indianapolis in 98. It changed many more. It, for, I think largely because they felt that, as a group, they were getting a bad name, they were interfering with the combine, and you know things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that's gone away, and, and so you change with it. You know, you change and grow. And and I was able to grow, and, and still obviously passionate and committed about what I was going to do and winning was what counted more than anything else, because that's the business. But, you know, my, my demeanor changed some. Mm-hmm. Um, funny story, Jeff Saturday, who's a great friend and a great Tar Heel, was doing an interview with somebody, I guess at the time of the Hall of Fame, and and said, and, and the person said to him, well, you know, Bill's so different than the way he's, portrayed, you know, when I see him around the grandchildren, all he's always laughing and playing games and things like that. And Jeff said, Yeah, we didn't see very much of Grandpa Bill all the time. <laughs> Grandpa Bill. <laughs> no, I imagine not. There was not a lot of that in the uh, in the early days, probably. I remember your um <clears throat> you had a famous stalemate here and I guess it was ninety seven your last year, but with Kevin Green when he he was wanting more money, I think, right? And you did, or I, he wanted to renegotiate a deal that was already well, done. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. It there was a rule that said that I think it still exists today. If you signed as a as an unrestricted free agent, you could not renegotiate that deal for obvious reasons. Right. You got top of the market when you signed, and now you know mm-hmm. the, the, it's on the cap. And it carries with it, renegotiating a deal carries with it huge cap ramifications. And even then, those were huge dollars. Lee Steinberg was his agent. He decided, he created the fiction that he, quote, outperformed the contract. That's impossible to do since it was a top of the market contract. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, and so we hit a stalemate. Fortunately, David Dunn and I, who was Steinberg's number two guy, had a, had a good relationship. And, uh, and I, we got very close to a compromise, but uh, it didn't, unfortunately didn't happen. Kevin went away for San, to San Francisco for a year and right. then returned um, toward the end right. of his last, uh, last year. Uh, you mentioned also the uh, competition committee and some of the um, you know key figures there that helped you. Well, obviously Paul Brown, and uh, in terms of orienting me, imagine being on the competition committee and being a rookie, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Paul Brown pulled me aside and <laughs> asked me a question. He said, uh, "Do you know why you're here?" And I said, "Well." I guess to deal with the rules, but I think you probably have some larger purpose in mind, so please tell me. And he said, you're right. He said, we are the guardians of the game. Don't ever forget that. And I haven't. And then um, as Coach Shula was nearing retirement, uh, you know, we'd talk about it every now and then. We were good friends, despite the fact that our teams our travels. Yeah. yeah, our travels every year. But that's Don Shula. You know, he, he talked about legacy and things like that. And of course, the, the undefeated season and, and the record meant a lot to him. And it should have. Mm-hmm. He He's the greatest coach of all time. But he said, you know, the greater part of it is that you'd like to feel that you made a contribution that made the game, left the game better than the way you found it. And so I've never forgotten that either. So the most important part is the people you touch. That's what makes this game so great. That's why, that's why we work so hard, why we, we're so devoted to it, why we compete so much. I mean, everybody at this level is highly competitive and highly skilled at what they do. But in the end, it's the people that you're with and the people that you touch that make it so special. And that's the thing you miss the most when you, when, when you leave the game. So. First and foremost, I hope that I helped the people that I had the opportunity to touch to be as good as they could be and, and help them in, in any, they, they see me as someone who helped them in any way they could. And secondly, I hope that during the time I was in the league, I made a small contribution to making it better than what I found. Guardians of the game. Well, you did that very well, Bill Polian, and it has been An honor to talk with you today. Thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Bill Polian. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Thanks so much for listening and supporting local journalism. Find more on these interviews, including special video features, at charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends. And pre-order the Sports Legends of the Carolinas book at sportslegendsbook.com. And if you like what we're doing out here, please consider a digital subscription to the Charlotte Observer. Sports Legends of the Carolinas is a product of the Charlotte Observer. It's hosted by me, Scott Fowler, and produced by Lume Alisali and Jeff Siner. The executive producer of the Sports Legends franchise is Kata Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and our executive editor is Raina Cash. The McClatchy Audio's interns are Zoe Williams and Christina Silvestri. See you next time.